Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust, and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. This episode will explore what has been called cancel culture, the elements at the root of the debate for or against online criticism, and the problematic assumptions and misunderstandings behind that still very much ongoing debate. A letter on justice and open debate, July 7, 2020. Our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, philanthropy and the arts. But this needed reckoning has also intensified a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. As we applaud the first development, we also raise our voices against the second. The forces of illiberalism are gaining strength throughout the world and have a powerful ally in Donald Trump, who represents a real threat to democracy. But resistance must not be allowed to harden into its own brand of dogma or coercion, which right-wing demagogues are already exploiting. The democratic inclusion we want can be achieved only if we speak out against the intolerant climate that has set in on all sides. The free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter-speech from all quarters. But it is now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders, in a spirit of panicked damage control, are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing on certain topics. 
professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study. And the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. We are already paying the price in greater risk aversion among writers, artists and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in agreement. This stifling atmosphere will ultimately harm the most vital causes of our time. The restriction of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. The way to defeat bad ideas is by exposure, argument and persuasion, not by trying to silence or wish them away. We refuse any false choice between justice and freedom, which cannot coexist without each other. As writers, we need a culture that leaves us room for experimentation, risk-taking, and even mistakes. We need to preserve the possibility of good faith disagreement without dire professional consequences. If we won't defend the very thing on which our work depends, we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend it for us. This letter on justice and open debate was published in the Harper's Magazine on July 7, 2020, and signed by 153 public figures, including academics like Noam Chomsky, but also novelists such as J.K. Rowling, feminists such as Gloria Steinem, journalists, historians, doctors, a broad array of people on the left side of the political spectrum. The letter voices worries about a growing intolerance within progressists that is said to actually provide ammunition to the right wing, who can stigmatize more easily what they call the progressist dogma or what Trump called the extreme left fascism. The letter advocates for a greater tolerance towards differing opinions. Some might say that what the letter advocates for is therefore a platitude. We have to fight for more justice while preserving freedom of speech. Who can disagree with that? But what was interesting to me is the fact that many signatories ended up apologizing for being unaware of some of the other signatories with whom they didn't want to be associated. So we observed a fear of being cancelled by the very people who were denouncing cancel culture. Now, what does the phrase cancel culture really refer to? What exactly are the terms of this very heated debate? A common definition for cancel culture relates it to withdrawing support for public figures after they have said or done something objectionable or offensive. So there are two problematic aspects here. Is it really merely withdrawing support or positively attacking? Is it also exclusively about public figures or just about anyone? We can start by saying that cancel culture is not really a new phenomenon. If we adopt a loose definition of cancel culture by not making it the prerogative of the progressists, 
then cancelling, silencing, or censorship in general has as long of a history as humankind. Socrates was sentenced to death for asking the wrong questions. Socrates was sentenced to death for asking the wrong questions. But what the expression cancel culture specifically refers to over the last decade, or at least initially referred to, seems to be narrowed down to a weapon used by an anti-patriarchal and anti-racist progressive left. We've observed the removal of support for public figures as a response to what was considered their objectionable opinions. This cancelling activism mainly takes the form of online shaming, call-outs via social media platforms such as Twitter. As in the example of Me Too, many movements have demanded greater accountability from public figures, leading to sometimes public humiliations, and have led to a source of great debate over the intricacies of internet ethics. Now the question is, has holding celebrities accountable for their opinions gone too far? And what then can be considered too far? Can free speech go too far and be weaponized? Or is free speech precisely the thing targeted by cancel culture? Are we just facing here leftist angry mobs using virtue vitriol to silence whoever disagree with them? Or have we entered a new era in which the violence of the reactions from the left can only be justified after such a long history of oppression over minorities? If censorship has been so long an instrument of the right wing, why can't the left wing use the social media platforms like Twitter as a powerful court of public opinion where the minorities' defenders can finally have a say and hold conservatists accountable for their actions and words? The whole cancel culture debate sometimes sounds a bit blurry, if not a false debate or a red herring a misleading argument where everyone at the end gets accused of cancelling and gets cancelled themselves. Basically since high school, in some ways I feel like I've had to self-censor around teachers, some acquaintances, or in work that I have to turn in. An example that comes to mind for me was my senior year of high school. Um, I was in AP English Literature. On its face, it's a, it's a college board course that is just supposed to be an, upper, an advanced English course. And my teacher basically turned the class into a political narrative class, which I didn't appreciate just because I was trying to learn how to sharpen my writing skills and my and my reading comprehension skills and all, all that sort of stuff toward, toward a college level. And we had papers due throughout the one in the fall and one in the spring. And I knew based on the way that she talked about her view on the world and how much time she spent on political affairs in a class that didn't necessarily have to be about political affairs, that if I wrote a paper that didn't particularly agree with her standpoint, I would get a lesser grade. I did, I wrote a paper with, I, I tended to fall in the center on most everything. And I wrote a paper that pushed back a little bit on some of the narratives that she was talking about in class for the fall. 
and I got a B. And then in the spring, I wrote a somewhat similar paper, but you know, with the things that she was talking about in the spring and agreeing with her, and I got an A+. And as far as I'm aware, both papers grammatically and, and structurally were of the same quality. I even had my, one of my very good relationships at that school was with my history teacher. I had him for three years. I had him read both of my papers and he said that neither one was better than the other one. And that was kind of the first time that I realized that this, this overarching phenomenon of cancel culture would be in my life. Cancel culture, I believe, is a very dangerous phenomenon for my generation specifically. 2020 turned into an incredibly divisive year in terms of U.S. politics. And I found that what I thought were reasonable questions and what I thought were just me trying to learn more about the sorts of things that were happening in the world were generating responses from friends and acquaintances that I was bigoted and that I was racist. And I don't, I truly don't think I'm bigoted nor racist. I try to live my life without either one of those things. I'm, I'm adopted and my family is a different race than I am. I've lived my whole life in a mixed race family and felt the repercussions of it. So I know about feeling discriminated against. I've had many people come up to me and ask who my parents were when my parents were standing right next to me, that sort of thing. So suddenly getting called out for simply asking a question or for playing devil's advocate on something that I may agree with, but I just want to know more about this specific person's position. And instead of getting a response that was welcoming to the debate or, or to de deepen both of our knowledges about the, the topic, it was just, I was struck with a label and basically shut down. And when I ask somebody why I don't get an answer. I would I get shut down and labeled as a bigot or told that I don't care, which is particularly it's it's particularly hurtful because I do believe I care and I do believe that I spend as much of my life as possible caring for others. And I find that to be really scary because I think the whole point of being a young person in college or in, in an educational institution, I'm lucky enough to be able to go to Fordham. That I should, my experience at Fordham should be of learning and feel, being tested in my beliefs, finding new beliefs, discarding old ones, and generally growing and maturing as an as a intellectual human being. And I'm finding that, especially in the past year, that the can cancel culture has has started to overlap with one's ability to learn and discuss subjects that are particularly sensitive. I have friends who fall on both sides of the debate on very extreme sides of the debate. I have friends who would cancel me for anything basically or cancel any of their friends for anything. It goes on their Instagram story to say if you if you believe this or if you voted for him or anything like that, I will not be your friend anymore. And they just preach that. On the other hand, I have I know people, I have friends who when they get canceled, instead of they, they take that hate, that frustration that they get for, for being pushed down and turn it into kind of a reciprocal anger. And then it just fuels the emotion because then the person who cancels just gets the reassurance that they canceled the right person because the person is being angry and coming at them with, with, with emotional arguments. And the person who got canceled just feels more and more 
pushed down and gets more and more emotional. It's kind of a vicious cycle. It's it's very hard to, in my opinion, to break out of it because as it rages, it kind of naturally pushes people apart. It's shocking to me, honestly, how even if you if someone considers themselves a progressive but missteps once, they can no longer be in the progressive circles that they frequented. And that is really, I think that's terrible for the arguments of my generation and because my generation, uh, young generations always tend to be more progressive and more accepting and open to change. And we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by complete re completely rejecting people who may agree with 98% of what this one progressive may believe, but then the 2% they disagree with. That seems like a recipe for no progress and for just for for division taking over my generation rather than being able to push the country forward. Let's explore further the arguments against cancel culture. And to begin, I'd like to go back to what might be problematic in the appellation cancel culture. First, about the word cancel. When it is about being removed from social media platforms, I don't think we should be too alarmed, but canceling can take more threatening forms, unfortunately, when people might lose their jobs for having sometimes just pronounced a word that was taken out of context. There are degrees here that forbid us to call for a Manichaean answer, for yes or no to cancel culture. Okay, now what about the culture part in the phrase cancel culture? A culture is supposed to have to do with beliefs, values, goals, social practices shared by a group, and it also is defined as a sophisticated expression of the intellectual and aesthetical patrimony of a social group. Well, one might ask then, what is cultural per se about silencing opinions? Cancel culture promotes a negative stance, one might say. It is essentially criticism, but without positively suggesting alternatives to build a new culture upon. The cancelling activists, as they are being called, are accused of intolerant boycott and of encouraging dangerous ostracism. Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist who signed the Harper's letter, is concerned by what he calls safetyism. What was 10 years ago a concern for safety, like building safe environment for minorities on campuses, for instance, has turned out to feel unsafe for anyone questioning the need for such safety. Cancel culture is accused of being a toxic, bullying system of dramatic narcissists. The way the counseling is handled can seem indeed very questionable. Upstream, tweets and materials from decades ago can be considered fair game in the defamation of character of the targeted person, not considering that people might have changed their mind over time. Plus, not allowing downstream any space for redemption over past mistakes not letting the ostracized person the possibility of answering or explaining. So the absence of listening here, the absence of understanding or contextualizing is something that remains very problematic for the people who are against cancel culture. 
Let's zoom into the J.K. Rowling case. People started to burn her books after she made a remark that has been perceived as anti-trans or transphobic. In June 2020, she contested the phrase people who menstruate instead of using the word woman. That ignited a backlash from the transgender community to which she answered the following words. If sex isn't real, she said, there is no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. The idea that women like me, who've been empathetic to trans people for decades, feeling kinship because they're vulnerable in the same way as women, to male violence, hate trans people because they think sex is real and has lived consequences, is a nonsense. Let's start by saying that Rowling's life hasn't been crushed by the criticism she faced. After all, she is still a billionaire selling tons of Harry Potter books. Still, the question remains, wasn't she in her right to voice the importance she gives to sex as an existing biological category? On the other hand, wasn't the trans community allowed to voice their concern about biological sex being considered a determining feature in a person? Rowling has been blamed for not reading the answers of her posts, while she, in turn, felt unheard or misunderstood and wanted her clarifications on her position to be read. On both sides, there seemed to have been a growing frustration, probably aggravated by the way the Twitter platform works. The social media rants Twitter allows for makes it look more like an overtly demagogical virtue-signaling tool for influencers to preserve followers, to not lose fans. Another aspect that seems concerning about cancel culture is the fact that while it seemed acceptable as a call for accountability towards people in high power and or uh, towards proven rapists or racists, it seems that the target has spread down to virtually anyone. What is perceived as cyberbullying affects people who have once made one stupid joke or comment, who once wore a stupid costume, who once said something stupid as, for instance, I should be able to play any person or any tree or any animal. That was Scarlett Johansson, who has been criticized for playing roles outside of her own race and gender identity. We lose our capacity to distinguish between serious transgressions worthy of legal punishment and stupid or relatively harmless comments, sometimes coming from people who have progressive opinions themselves, creating therefore a polarization within the left that weakens its political strength. It is often said indeed that cancel culture contributes to the polarization of American society instead of promoting a dialogue between diverging views, which can make people question what the exact function or benefits of cancel culture are in terms of societal cohesion and common progress. Like many things, cancel culture definitely has its pros and its cons. Um, the main pro, I'd say, is that I think it does help hold people accountable for their mistakes, especially those on a bigger platform with influence over a lot of people, like 
celebrities and authors and public figures. But that being said, I do, I've seen cancel culture at home and on campus having some negative effects that maybe aren't intended, but do happen. I think cancel culture sometimes can result in less dialogue around topics that are kind of challenging. The example that comes to mind for me is I'm a member of the LGBTQ community and I have a lot of straight friends and I've noticed the effects of cancel culture with my straight friends. Um, For example, this past summer, I was telling one of my straight friends about how I had a new girlfriend and she said, you know, we were just talking about it. And then she said, you know, I don't have a lot of gay friends and I actually have some questions about LGBTQ topics, but I'm, I'm kind of nervous to ask you about it because I don't want to offend you or phrase something wrong or ask something inappropriate, like that type of thing. And personally, I told her that I, I strongly prefer her asking any of her questions instead of not asking. Because I think when you don't ask, you can, you know, develop some uninformed answers that might actually be false and just make things worse, I guess. So I think this this situation to me is an example of someone who has good intentions, but they're scared to ask uncomfortable questions about taboo topics because they're afraid they're going to make a mistake and it'll become a big thing. So reflecting on experiences like this, I do think cancel culture can be harmful in the fear of being canceled, affecting well-intentioned people, and then resulting in them shying away from topics where they're more likely to make a mistake, especially if they're like not a member of that community, for example. So yeah, from my standpoint with this example, I always prefer that my straight peers just open and honestly ask me questions. And plenty of people in conversations have made mistakes. For example, a common one is someone will say, like, when they're asking, they'll refer to being gay as a choice instead, which I would classify as a mistake. But I just point it out. I'm like, I know you don't mean choice, but that word is, you know, not the best word to use here. And people are receptive and they learn and I think it works out. So I think there are people who are probably deserving of the canceling that goes on, especially in the public sphere. But in daily life, I think we have to be mindful about not letting cancel culture cancel dialogue with well-meaning people as well. To go back on cancel culture affecting virtually anyone and not specifically people in power, I just wanted to add that in my experience as a professor, I have been approached by students who came to me after class confessing that they were afraid to express their opinion for fear of being called out on social media. They said they were afraid of even asking questions in class, especially when discussing difficult moral questions, which I definitely found concerning. I also remember when we had a discussion in class last year about the Black Lives Matter protests, and I was quite shocked by the silence of a lot of students during class. Students who were actually supporting the protest but didn't partake, they weren't in the streets because of COVID, and felt that they would be shamed if they admitted it. 
One of them told me that he felt he risked being cancelled if he didn't actively post about the protest on a daily basis on the grounds that silence equal violence. To which I asked quite naively, what is that consolation to you? I'm a bit of a dinosaur and because I, I never had a Facebook account nor any other social media aside from a recent Instagram. A friend of mine insisted I create it for my photography. But I don't think I follow anyone and I'm probably not getting followed either. So I didn't really get the reasons for fearing being cancelled on social media. But that was naive me forgetting that the Generation Z's lives are inseparable from their social media image. But let's now further explore the reasons why cancel culture should not be that stigmatized. When speaking about cancel culture, are we referring to legitimate boycott after all? Or really just to irrelevant bullying or witch hunt mentality, as it has often been said? Are we really on the slippery slope to some Orwellian dystopia? It is in a way legitimate to demand greater accountability from public figures. Social media platforms can give power to voices who traditionally don't have it. Cancelling might be an overdue way of speaking the truth to people in power. And it is only fair to see racist, homophobic and sexist speeches being cancelled. Boycotting institutions, people or companies with large influence can lead to very necessary changes in society. Besides, despite what the Harper's letter seems to state, we have to accept the obvious fact that free speech has limits. There was always limits on free speech. There will always be limits on free speech. Some of these limits are actually legitimate. The question is, whose freedom are we talking about? It is relevant to ask ourselves who can say what, when, how, where, to whom, and to question and be aware of the effect words have on people who might disagree with you. And again, as I was saying earlier, cancelling in the broader sense of censorship actually comes from the other side to begin with. The overwhelmingly more powerful patriarchy and structural racism has been cancelling voices and annihilating for centuries the voices of minorities. Here I just think about a text I actually make my students read sometimes from George Yancey. In 2015, the New York Times published an article from him called Dear White America, and Yancey received large amounts of hate mail and harassment after that. He was actually listed in the Professor Watch List, a website that aims at documenting or doxing uh, anti-conservative college professors. He was made aware of that and published a piece in response in the New York Times entitled I Am a Dangerous Professor in 2016. I really encourage you to read that text in which he was just flabbergasted at the fact that he was on that professor watch list and even that such a watch list against progressive speakers or against just leftists in general existed. Consolation top-down happens all the time and has been happening for ages. It just isn't called cancellation. It doesn't take also the form of public humiliation on Twitter. And this conflation between right-wing censorship and left-wing cancellation activism 
and add to that the left-wing anti-cancellation reaction to cancellation, already takes place to the point where everyone seems to be throwing the hot potato of being responsible for cancellation to the other camp, making, to say the least, the debate quite frustrating at times. It seems that often the phrase cancel culture, just like political correctness, is mostly used by reactionaries to police social change, and there is obviously a double standard here. Some people against the left-wing cancel culture have compared activists to Maoists during the Chinese Cultural Revolution from 1966 on. Mao would call on students to purge those who that had betrayed the revolution. You probably are familiar with the widespread violence that happened then, with libraries being burned to the ground by Red Guards, murders, etc., refusal to grant medical aid to those considered counter-revolutionaries, etc. This parallel needs to be nuanced. We might be surfing on a slippery slope, but in the cancel culture we're facing, no one is incarcerated for being considered anti-progressist, no one has been murdered yet just because they say the word that has been then taken out of context. And indeed, the murders seem to be imputable to the other side. In fact, the people that are being supposedly unjustly cancelled are not reduced to absolute silence, nor part of a marginalized minority. Cancel culture has and will continue to have a significant impact on the future of political discourse, but also university education, in our professional careers, and in simple conversations between individuals in the private sphere. I certainly don't have solutions for de-escalating the ongoing fights, Though I am tempted to call Joel Jamal, who in July 2020, in the Australian magazine Spectator, said the following. So how do we solve this circular firing squad, as Barack Obama put it in April 2019? Well, we need cancel culture herd immunity. If 50% of people get cancelled, then it will nullify the concept of being banned because everyone else is also deemed persona non grata. Joking aside, the judgment of people who might perceive cancel culture as a tyrannical and totalitarian orthodoxy of political correctness would lack nuance just as much as extreme forms of that cancelling activism. For instance, when words are taken out of context and careers of people who are neither racist nor sexist are affected. So not only there is a lack of nuance in this debate, but probably also a self-righteousness where both sides seem to be taking themselves perhaps a bit too seriously and easily forget to look at their own flaws before compulsively attacking the opponent. The phrase cancel culture itself seems misleading. First, it sounds on purpose by the people who oppose it, like some dogmatic totalitarian movement, destroying or murdering anyone who disagrees. Second, it pretends to embrace too wide a variety of reactions, from the most justified, awareness on rape or racism, for instance, to the least justifiable, causing someone to lose their jobs when they use the word that is controversial, even if the context in which they used it was actually meant to explain why we have to ban the usage of that very word. By blurring the differences between this radically 
different types of actions, people might see less credibility in the blames that really matter, the fights which are truly relevant to fight. Basically, it would just throw out the baby with the bathwater. We tried to go beyond the usual manichaeism with which this whole issue is being addressed, either by people reject any grounds for cancel culture or by people reject any grounds for criticizing it. The debate around cancel culture takes the form of a black or white show. And one way of shifting the perspective here, instead of focusing on silencing or negating the people who disagree with us, could be to primarily focus on positively promoting the values we believe in and the people who embody these values. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? a podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast, as well as composing all of the music. Many thanks to my students Jordan and Eli and to my friend Christy for the help they provided. Stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>